0: And welcome to Shift F One, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is French for "to have butter and butter money."
1: Butter money—that's what it was. I heard yes.
0: uh the meaning beard. you can't always get what you want. I'm not sure anyone anyone actually wants Circuit Paul Ricard, uh, but perhaps I want butter is. money. I don't know what butter money is, but <laughs> give me a slice of toast and cover that bad boy. <laughs> Perhaps it's what we need after a two-week break. I'm Drew Scanlon, joining me, Danny O'Dwyer. How are you, Danny? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here at Circuit Paul Ricard. Maybe I am, though. That's the thing.
1: Who knows? Last year's race has thrown everything into confusion. And this year's cars and also track limits, there's a lot to talk about today.
0: There sure is. Also joining us, Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob?
2: Uh... Sweltering a bit, but you know what? At least I have AC, so I'm feeling feeling okay, I guess, in the in the scheme of things. But uh after a pretty mild
0: summer today, we're we're finally in it. Fantastic. Well, if you are new to this podcast, a very warm and not too humid welcome to you. Uh if you are new to Formula One itself, we have a podcast just for you. The preseason primer episode assumes no prior F1 knowledge. And explains how the sport works and who everybody is. So if you'd like to go back and listen to that to get yourself up to speed, it's episode 178. Also, the show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shift F1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons that cover racing documentaries and films, uh, F1 video games, experiments with other racing series and a lot of weird things so if you would like to support the show and get access to all of that fun stuff head over to patreon.com slash f1 or click the link in the show notes what do we have going on this month danny and
1: a couple of days we're going to record a very special episode of our uh, Patreon exclusive podcast uh, on the 1973 george lucas uh, bay area classic american graffiti uh, as far as i know i've never seen it as far as i know a, a classic uh, uh, film about sort of car culture maybe and a little bit Mm. of racing maybe in there as well um fun diversion for us this uh this month so that'll be up next week uh, especially as we enter the um the quiet little summer break we're coming up on here as well Uh, and of course thank you so much to all of our incredible title sponsors zach Zook, sucks at f1 max's number one fan remy team blackjack michael maves gordy's army Ash Talking Autos, Tanner McLeave, Olivia Evans, Pyrite's Card Castle, Erica Siegel, Iron Station Studios, Alan McCrary, TelemetryDeck.com. They went to deck again. Okay. They keep me on my toes, Telemetry Deck, uh, And <laughs> Gnarly Ghost, David Mule, Drew Stewart, Bailey Foot, Abdullah Althani. There's the Brain Trust there. The, t- this, uh, the title sponsor, formerly known as Jack Chadwick, Jason Chadwick. What's happening there? Maybe they're going to be Jack Chadwick after this. I'm not quite <laughs> sure. Um, Abraham Getchell, Octo Thorpe, Bunny Crimes, Snigs, Alex Goucher, Max Voltar, Circuit Demon, Troy Stammer, Umberto Roca, William Romph, Wiley, Old Batong, and Jason Kelly.
0: Wow! Wow! Some real. Yeah, I know. Some real. Cards getting in there. full.
1: We have a we have a great email about uh, advertising as well. Listen to that later.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, before we get to emails, let's jump right into news here, shall we? Uh, with something, Rob, that you flagged to us <laughs> as soon as, it seems like as soon as you read it, that you really wanted to talk about.
2: And and fellas, it's so much better than even I hoped. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, last week, there was a very weird thing that I, in my naivete assumed was just one of those things where there's a pre scheduled announcement and whoops we have an embarrassing incident which was the chip can ask it. so hang on this is IndyCar beef this is IndyCar news okay. however it is F1 relevant okay. uh, be, and especially because F1 might be used as a fig leaf here for IndyCar breach of rules anyway we'll get to that so <laughs> Alex Palou, uh, the reigning champ in IndyCar, a like top tier young Spanish driver, uh, currently races with Chip Ganassi Racing, which is one of the uh, like more established and uh, like competent outfits in IndyCar. Uh, Chip Ganassi Racing announced last week. That he had re-signed with the team they were excited mm-hmm. to uh extend him for another year and as these announcements uh you know do it had a little bit in there about you know a quote from him saying how thrilled he was to re-sign with the team cut to a little like a couple hours later and Pelogos goes on on twitter and makes his own statement that Hell no, he didn't resign with the team, and that is not a statement from him. That Chip Ganassi uh, Racing included in their statement. Oh wow, uh, he is not—he is not racing with Chip Ganassi next year. And oh, he's then, a, oh,
1: he's—he—he he is not. It's not even like I haven't no, resigned yet. Like, I'm no, like,
2: not doing it. <laughs> oh <my> wow. <laughs> and then a little little ways after that, McLaren F1 goes on Twitter. And welcomes Alex Palou to the team for next year. And for a minute, for a minute, it's like very weird. Like, wait, what? Did Daniel Ricciardo just get fucking fired? Like out of the blue? <laughs> no, they're welcoming him to the Aero McLaren family because they they have a IndyCar outfit, and uh, they announced, yes, he signed. He is signed to drive with uh, Aero McLaren IndyCar next year. Uh, and will will be joining the growing roster of young drivers that Zach Brown has testing uh, for mm-hmm. for F one. Mm-hmm. So, my assumption was okay. This is a mess, but like Chip, somebody Chip Ganassi jumped the gun, uh, and that's it'll it'll just be worked out. But like clearly, this was this was a mistake.
1: No, 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 damn, no. Damn, social media producers always <laughs> causing big problems,
2: right? Then Chip Ganassi Racing clarifies, "Oh no, we've got him under contract for next year. <laughs> like we got, we have a signed contract, huh? But so does McLaren. Hmm. So the the best roundup of this, uh, and best, and also maybe uh, most gossipy, which makes it even better, uh, is from Marshall Pruitt over at uh, Racer Racer Magazine." Uh, sort of outlining the the backdrop to all of this, but some of this is based on just people that uh, Pruitt has spoken to up and down, uh, you know the the pit the pit lane. Uh, some of it is just sort of like common knowledge that's in the air around driver contracts. But the thing is, Chip Ganassi Racing wouldn't have made an announcement like that if they weren't confident that they were in a good place. Now, where this gets complicated is this is a situation where. Chip Ganassi Racing signed Polo to a two-year contract, and at that point, he was a promising young, promising young driver, but he was not a world champion. He was not an IndyCar champion at that point. They signed him, and then he goes off on this tear last year and emerges as one of the best open, open wheel racers like maybe in the world but he's got a contract that is not commensurate with that right which which happens you know this is this is right. classic sports stuff you know you're you're sort of in your journeyman phase you get a good opportunity you sign a contract you blow up and suddenly your contract is wildly undervalued Apparently, Chip Ganassi Racing knew this was a reality, and we're trying to negotiate one of those like goodwill extensions, right, where we could make you race under this contract next year, but we want to make sure we want to bring it in the line uh, with your actual current market value, and uh, so there's, there's so there's no ill will. But it seems like into the mix here comes Zach Brown, and I like this part. I do not I do not understand the origins of this, but according to Pruitt, it is known and infamous that Zach Brown and Chip Ganassi hate each other. Like, <laughs> da- there is, like, big, beef. rich, blowhard beef between these two guys, and that some of this might just be Zach Brown, like, jamming his thumb into Chip Ganassi <laughs> a little bit, like, putting his thumb in his eye a little bit, uh, j- just to mess with him. But McLaren comes into this picture to, like, poach Polo, And the theory that Pruitt advances in this article is that this is basically uh, the equivalent of a movie you see in basketball all the time, which is the, I demand to be traded. Mm. You walk in the GM's office like, I don't care what that contract says. We're done here. It's a wrap. This is how this plays out in... The NBA um, has varied and it has like very like there are some people there's arguments for it being good or bad, uh, depending on who you talk to, not in terms just of like worker empowerment, but also whether it's just the best way of doing business and whether this necessarily se- like serves uh, players long term. But we haven't seen it's like very often in IndyCar and it's kind of uncommon, uh, even in F1, though not unprecedented. But the theory here is that Pelo basically just wanted to toss a grenade in here and make it so that whatever contract Chip Ganassi Racing had was so clearly untenable to enforce that in somewhere in all of this, they're just going to get a deal done to have a at least somewhat amicable divorce with Polo. Mm-hmm. That doesn't appear to be what Ganassi's interested in yet. Um, And you can sort of see where a team owner might not be eager to establish this precedent because. You know, if suddenly contracts with a lot of upside don't have that upside, you know, if you sign a young driver in the minute, like they have their breakthrough moment, whatever that contract is, is now like void. Um, that can be, that might be a little bit of an alarming precedent, uh, to set, but there's also the thing I was, that I think Pruitt gets at in this piece, but also you heard it, uh, IndyCar race this weekend, you heard it from the, uh, NBC crew, a lot of ex-drivers and people who know the space really well also make the case that, in everyone's view, it's just kind, it is just kind of untenable that you cannot make Polo drive for Chip Ganassi at this point when he has, like, flipped the table on the situation, especially not Chip Ganassi's team, which I guess has a reputation for being a team that kind of runs on good vibes, that, like, mm-hmm. it's a really buttoned-down operation, and part of that is that everyone tends to be on, like, good, professionable, professional, amicable terms with each other, and... Polo at this point, whatever that contract says, that's not, that model's not going to fit this situation. The other, the, I mentioned the McLaren F1 thing in the picture here. I don't fully understand this part. I'm not like, I'm not sure if I've seen it necessarily confirmed, but like there are anti-tampering uh, measures in place in IndyCar. I gather where like there are prescribed ways that teams can negotiate with other teams, drivers. Every league has this, right? It's anti-poaching, anti-tampering uh, regulations. Also, every league has these things breached routinely, right? It's like, again, to go to the NBA, uh, All-Star Week is absolutely like a week full of negotiations about like the future. Uh, it's just often players doing it. Um, but there's a theory that one reason that McLaren F1 made the announcement was that... If it appears that all the negotiation was with an F one team, there's a fig leaf over it that it wasn't an IndyCar team breaking IndyCar regulations. <laughs> I don't know if that holds up at all. Um, it seems like it's sort of thing to just like fall over <laughs> like a house of cards uh, in a legal proceeding. But that's that's one theory. the the other The other aspect of this, though, where where it gets a little bit weird, is remember earlier in the season, there's all these weird vibes around. Um, there were all these weird vibes around uh ward and like his right. future with McLaren and him being unhappy and really wanting to race in F1. Uh, also this past weekend, again through McLaren, I think Colton Herta did a test at, at Portimao and now they're sort of courting Alex Polo, Uh, And like sort of holding out the possibility that he might test for for F1. And so Zach Brown is kind of in this weird like Piper situation (laughs) of being like, ah, I am the gateway to F1 for the drivers who are aspiring to that in the American
1: Open Wheel series. To the point where, you know, Ricardo, even last week or a couple of days ago, had to come out with a statement. Maybe it was yesterday. wasn't It came out with a statement saying, I'm sticking around. I'm not going anywhere. There's a contract in place that like it's not
2: like he has to stick around. (laughs) So, yeah, the whole thing, like, I don't know what Zach Brown is doing. This is a lot of people put on. the. There's there's at this point now what that's that's four dogs and one bone because I don't think Lando Norris is going anywhere
0: right Um, yeah
2: so the entire thing just has exquisite messiness to be Uh, continued yeah and it's it's so good because i think you know we were talking last year about um you know how innocent and like good times indycar is and now we are in the middle of the like most toxic silly season thing i've seen like in racing in years uh much less f1 so this is this is fantastic
0: yeah that's some american beef right there Delicious. uh well speaking of contracts danny what's up with paul ricard
1: yeah, so Paul Ricard, uh, the, 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 it's kind of, um, the, noth- no breaking news here, but just worth, uh, worth, uh, worth talking about considering, again, kind of like Rob's story, there's a couple of dominoes that could fall in a lot of different directions here. So Paul Ricard's contract is up after this year. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of, uh, I guess, what's going on in F1 at the moment is that F1's more popular than ever, it's making more money than ever, let the good times roll. Well, global economy next year might be a totally different story. But at the moment, circuits are chomping at the bit to get races. Another aspect of this is that Monaco is under increasing pressure as well. Um, I don't think F1 wants to pull Monaco or anything like that. But the conversation is beginning louder and louder and louder and louder. So at the moment, um, there's a a couple of issues with Paul Ricard. So last year's race was good. And we'll talk about this in the track walk. But there has been a lot of blowback from fans over the past, you know, prior four years ...of fairly boring races. Um, It's also a track which, weirdly enough, they're having trouble getting people in to enjoy it as well. It's in the French Riviera. It's right outside Marseille. But it just does not have the pull of Monaco, which is not that far. Monaco is like only, you know, a couple of hours' drive towards the Italian um, uh, border. Um, They've also said that there is... Liberty said that there is a, a race in... It would be Nice which is the major city that Monaco basically straddles, um, that there is a new circuit that's being built there. So...
0: Is it being built?
1: Oh, sorry, it's built there, sorry. But but they have never raced on it before. Oh, interesting. And then there's classic other ones. I think it's being finished at the moment. But then there's classic other ones, like, for instance, Manicor... Uh, which have always been, you know, fans always want to come back there. But Manicourt is like in the middle of nowhere. It's like Spa in France. It's, it's you know, equidistant between, uh, you know, Paris and Lyon. Doesn't uh, it Leon. Doesn't also have sort of the Watkins Glen
2: problem of like, it's a great course for F1 cars that just don't run anymore? Right, like anymore, it could be like that in the process of updating it, it's no longer MagniCore as we know it. Right. So that's that's another thing. Is there's some places? Uh, I think what was Elizabeth Blackstock wrote
1: a piece about. Trust me, you don't want in F1 to come to, to your major yeah. course. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you know this is at a time where we have multiple, you know, French drivers. We have race winning French drivers here as well: Ocon, Gasly, and Leclerc. Um, and I think so. So basically, it's like there's a lot of pressure coming from a lot of different places, whether or not we'll see Paul Ricard back this year or next year could hinder a lot on how it does this year. And uh, we'll talk about in the track walk. But there are some sort of things falling into place which might actually make it a good track this year. Um, but we'll have to wait and see.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, well, we're waiting and seeing also um, what's going to be the end result of all this purposing stuff. Uh, that the FIA has been talking about. We've mentioned in the past, um, You know, although we haven't been porpoising too much uh, in the last few races, the FIA is still committed to combating it. Um, but we, we have talked in the past about the measurement that they're going to try to use to determine if a car is bouncing too much. The mm-hmm. aerodynamic oscillation metric, or AOM, uh, as Autosport says, the AOM will become mandatory from the spa weekend, but teams will be able to use the metric from this weekend's French Grand Prix to better understand it. So I guess maybe look for uh, maybe at least some talking heads. I'll bet if you watch practice, they'll bring this up. That's <laughs> kind mm. of a uh, a practice sort of thing. Um, but there is kind of another wrinkle here. Um, And uh, work continues, to ensure that the AOM applies to all competitors equally, the FIA is also introducing measures that will outlaw tricks that some outfits are understood to have played in flexing their floors and planks for better performance. Mm. So to explain here, the lower your car is to the track, the better your floor works aerodynamically. But you're not allowed to run... A car that's just scraping along the ground so to police the height of your car the FIA has the team's place wooden skid blocks along the bottom of the car and then measures how much they wear away during a race the maximum being one millimeter Mm -hmm. Uh, there are holes in the plank where this measurement is taken so if you imagine a hole drilled in a table you're able to see you know the thickness of the table pretty easily Uh, But crucially, only one hole needs to pass the check. So some teams, and Autosport points to Ferrari as one of them, are getting around this in one of two ways. So one, a car may have a flexible floor so that when the car sinks closer to the ground at the front, the rear stays higher, meaning that the rear part of the skid block doesn't get worn down thus ensuring you know a nice measurement spot. Mm. The other way is that the skid block actually retracts into the floor oh, as no. the car gets lower. Uh, Total Wolf has said that he expects this last method will disappear by spa, uh, but that the first one will only go away with the 2023 regulations. So the FIA has already outlined those regulations. Uh, and as they are summarized by Autosport here, quote, these are a 25-millimeter raising of the floor edges, a raising of the underfloor diffuser throat, the introduction of a more stringent lateral floor deflection test, and the use of a more accurate sensor to quantify aerodynamic oscillation. All of the above measures are to be submitted urgently to the FIA's World Motorsport Council for ratification so that teams can get to work on revised 2023 designs. So... I'll just say this. I do like in all of this,
2: Mattia Bonato has basically been like, yeah, they got us. Uh, <laughs> yeah. These new regulations, huge effects, huge. Oh yeah. Like co- totally gonna Like uh fuck with our concept. And meanwhile, like uh, Horner has, you know, very been trying to like, basically plays very close to the vest. Right. But it, it seems very clear that like Ferrari knew that they were like trying to get around this loophole. It seems almost certain that Red Bull uh, also did something similar Um, And a lot of teams are anticipating like to see some gains from the field converging a bit. But here's my, here's my question is like, is this a loophole we necessarily want to close for next year? Because if it made the car's porpoise less, you know, and and this method is open to everyone, it seems like maybe you just let people have the flexi uh, floor like next year. Unless, unless there's also like beyond the, corpusing angle like is there a safety angle to this where there was a reason they didn't want floors doing this uh, i don't know like if, if that ties into some of the old anxieties around too much ground effect can be kind of dangerous uh for for the cars uh but but i do find it kind of odd that like i am i like that they will be tackling this from kind of two angles like bring the field like making sure everyone's using the same rule set and then also setting some standards for how much porpoising you can inflict on the drivers but at the same time i'm kind of curious like if 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 this is the method that made cars
0: porpoise less Mm. do we necessarily want to rule it for next year ferrari from the beginning has had it seems a handle on the porpoising even when they do show it as soon as they hit the brakes the car just settles down Yeah, Uh, and can make corners and stuff. So who? Yeah, I don't know. I hope that it is not a big, uh, you know, for the sake of a close championship. I hope it is not a big upset to Ferrari, but uh, I guess we'll see. Um, Speaking of regulations, Danny, uh, you wanted to follow up here.
1: Yeah, just in relation to the Zoe stuff, which I brought up um, a little bit late because I was away during the Silverson stuff um, with regard to the uh, spiked roll hoop, which sort of disintegrated once that car flipped over. Um, So uh, just a quick little primer for those of you who don't know, the roll hoop is uh, the sort of highest point in the car at the back. It's right where the TV camera is stuck on. And the roll hoop um, was sort of before the halo was introduced, it was an important part of the car for helping to make sure that the driver's head was protected during any sort of crash, but it also has a use in that even with the halo system, the roll roll hoops remain as a way of helping egress from the car for the, the drivers. So during a crash, the halo is obviously not enough, not creating enough space for the driver to crawl out, and in the case of Zoe, as you could see, if that car went on fire, it would have been quite a difficult challenge to get him out of the car because it basically sort of pancakes and he was stuck underneath it as light as these cars are, that is a relative relative term, um, especially when somebody's flopping around on the inside. It's difficult to extract them. So perhaps unsurprisingly, um, it looks like there will be a, a more a stringent roll hoop tests in 2023. And what is also likely to happen is that the spiked roll hoop, which is the sort of configuration that Alfa Romeo have continued to use, it was sort of popularized in around 2010 by Mercedes. Um, it is still allowed Uh, it's, it's, if you were to look at a bunch of road hoops, it's, it's kind of tricky to see how different it is from it, but it it basically means the assemblage is sort of coming up through the top. Maybe there's only one point of failure on it or less points of failure, but it's likely to be, uh, omitted as an option next year. They, they reckon it was kind of on the way out anyway, um, uh, those cars the the Alphagas are the only cars that use them at the moment at uh, that configuration so that is likely to happen and um yeah the FA are going to continue to do an investigation on it more tests next year and we'll likely see that ban come in so I know another you know for new fans of F1 this is kind of par for the course these years when something bad happens um they try and get on top of it as quickly as possible. Um, that's why the Halo exists, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, yeah, it looks like, looks like they're, they're working on it anyway.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like stricter tests, you know, it, it, even, yeah. even if they do ban the, the spike um, uh, design that they'll... Because the, the problem was that it just basically collapsed. It did not hold up, or maybe it right. did hold up to FIA. In fact, I think as, this is what happened. The FIA had a, a sort of, uh, te- you know, a load limit... That it had to hit and the car hit it but it exceeded it and shows right. crash so uh, I guess expect them to just
2: one thing that. before we get to the next story like because I also saw some discussion around um whether sausage curbs have a long term future in f1 because mm-hmm. they're kind of put there to discourage like to create more of a risk and expense for cutting corners um but we've also seen they have a really really uh great ability to launch cars into the air they get under the skid plate was it
0: was it Pillow that uh, had that huge launch oh in formula three oh, i can't remember um
2: the one in right. the
1: one in monza was Go- it yeah
2: keep keep going i'll look well, it up. yeah yeah you- Google that was, that was well, crazy well, about it. but like i am thinking about there's kind of two things right which is that uh in addition to this sort of crash structure issue It does seem like we've had a couple weird near misses with cars getting launched really unexpectedly. Like one is—can I I add
1: one into that as well? Yeah, gravel. Mm -hmm. These, These cars are digging into the gravel as well because they're lower and because that's that's at least I've there's been a couple of times this year. We had a few emails about it as well, wondering if gravel was also an issue here.
2: Well, I think it, I think it is, but only if the car's already launched, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the we we saw this like there's always been the fear of like the what what Brundle will call like the airplane crashes uh, right. that you sometimes see in F1, uh, like we saw in Australia ages ago with Alonso. Um, but here we had a car just it was a pretty routine like shunt at the start of a Grand Prix, and a car just gets launched cartwheeling. Uh, across Mm -hmm. the track at high speed. And then we had that, like, you know, nothing came of it, so I'm not sure we internalized it as, like, it seems like it was a near miss with Hamilton uh, being hit by Verstappen at Monza uh, the other year, where, like, uh, the cars get into each other and one kind of rides up the other uh, and booms around and goes through that top crash structure again. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so I, I do wonder if there is something about the current like design of the cars and the way they interact in these collisions. Um, plus the way they interact with some of the track features mm. that is making them more prone to these sort of spectacular unexpected incidents, uh, where you've got cars. Cause that's really the danger, right? Like most race, most possible coll- like accidents on a grand prix circuit are sort of per- like they are seen in advance and you yeah. sort of contour the track to handle what it'll likely, outco- like, incidents. Yeah, they
1: fall into a template where right. usually you can tell what's going to happen with the cars. And there are freak ones, like, say, Weber in, it was Valencia, was it where, like, you know, crazy, he just rear-ended another car and flipped in the, in the air. But, like, that's not what the Zocas was. The Zocas was a pretty par-for-the-course uh start of a you know two two doesn't go into three or yeah. three doesn't go into two crash which we've seen at the start of spa a million times which you know that's why they have big runoffs at the end of the start finish rates but yeah you're right what happened was like completely different so, than expected
2: so i do kind of wonder like the the roll hoop and crash structure stuff is one angle of this but it does feel like i don't know maybe it's just recency bias but in the last few years it feels like we've had a number of incidents where they are the sorts of accidents where it's like, well, these are just these these are just rolling dice now, right? Where mm. like the way cars are going, like getting launched and sort of being bounced, it's creating situations where it kind of feels like anything can happen, which is a real different case from you know an anticipated if a car goes off here, it'll run across you know a hundred yards of tarmac yeah. and into
0: uh you know a multi layer bar- barrier. Mm. Uh, it was Alexander Peroni. Mm. oh yeah uh, in Wild formula crash. three monza 2019 oh. yeah i'll I'll put the link in the show notes he he was i think he was fine after it i don't think he yeah. suffered the, any. the
1: car easily went like 60 feet in the air it was it's,
0: it doesn't it looks like when the physics break in iRacing. racing
1: yeah it looks stupid yeah, it, do, it
0: doesn't look real it's a
1: crazy crash you're very lucky
0: uh well speaking of safety <clears throat> the austrian grand prix mm. um Safety e crew has issued a statement about their response to uh, Carlos Sainz pulling over while he was on fire. Uh, it was sort of a uh, I don't know, like a Three Stooges sort of event where they were he was trying to get out and the car was on fire, but it was also rolling backwards, so he had to get in the car and try to hit the brakes, but he couldn't hit the brakes for some reason. And a guy in the background came with a fire extinguisher but put it on the ground, not on the car. And then another guy came around and like tried to chalk the wheels but failed. It was uh didn't look good so the the official safety crew at the austrian track has issued a statement here um the autosport article also points out that the marshals are not allowed to attend to incidents until they have been given the go-ahead by race control which i didn't i didn't know that uh, i thought they were sort of autonomous yeah. but i guess mm. that makes sense so there there could be so you don't have guys
2: running across a live track
0: maybe yeah, I think that was also, uh, you know, some amend, amendment made in the wake of uh, the Jules Bianchi, Jules Bianchi crash in right. um, Japan. Um, but anyway, the statement reads like this. The place where signs parked the Ferrari was not visible from the Marshalls' stand. Mm. They received instructions over the radio to go to the car with fire extinguishers. And when they saw the situation, they made the decision to call in the fire engine. Uh, this decision had to be made within seconds, and in retrospect, was absolutely correct. If you remember Roman Grosjean's accident at the 2020 Bahrain Grand Prix, in a situation like that, handheld fire extinguishers are absolutely not enough. Therefore, the fire extinguisher was turned off, and the car was left, which led to that unfortunate image on TV of the marshal quote running away. Uh, we had a fire engine on the scene in less than 30 seconds, which would have been which would have brought a fast spreading fire under control. Since Grosjean's accident, it is very important for us to have a lot of, quote, extinguishing power on the spot immediately in order to protect the driver in the best possible way. Another emergency vehicle was already standing by, and a third was on its way. Even if signs had not come out of the vehicle on his own, we would have been able to protect him in the best possible way. My question is, if he had not come out of his vehicle, what... are you just expecting him to hold the brake while he is on fire? I guess is my question.
2: Well, there's one other thing, which is I do remember Grosjean's incident and I remember a guy with a fire extinguisher playing Running a rather key role in that. <laughs> yes. like There was somebody there with a fire extinguisher blasting back the flames, which I think they said like helped Grosjean orient himself toward like where his escape path was. Mm. Um, but <laughs> yeah, like look, I, I am, like, if, if there was a fire truck, like, that was 30 seconds away, like, yeah, maybe it was all being handled correctly, uh but it did sort of seem like, I just, I don't think you're gonna get around the fact that it doesn't look awesome when the marshal puts down the fire extinguisher and sort of waves off, uh, uh-huh. rather than go over there, like, maybe it was the same guy who then went and got the wheel chalk, like, to to try and stop the, the car rolling, which did seem like it may have become the bigger problem, right, like, yeah, a burning car that is stationary is a is seems like a less uh, bad problem than a car that you're trying to extinguish that is running down a hill away from you
1: it's like something out of a western like a wagon on fire yeah. coming down a hill
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh burning right, stone
1: well, tying
0: a maiden uh to the track <laughs> behind the burning exactly. uh ferrari <laughs> well hopefully we've all learned uh a little something from that uh now let's learn about France, Danny. France The French Grand Prix Location Circuit Paul Ricard.
1: We're gonna stick in a random early email here from Ben. Ben says, Hi guys, love the podcast. I'm new to the sport this year and have a single question. Why does Circuit Paul Ricard look like that? Was it designed by a circus clown? Thanks. <laughs> Great introduction there. The circuit polar card from Ben. (laughs) Uh, Circuit polar card. So, uh, you know, this has become kind of a bit, I guess, on the podcast, my disdain for this track. Mostly because when it was introduced, people were like, I don't know. There's a lot of runoff here. This is kind of a gentleman driver's weekend track. Do we really want to race F1 cars here? And then I was preceded by quite a lot of very boring races. Mm. Um, Last year's race was good. Good battle between Verstappen and Hamilton down to the end but this is a track which um does not necessarily punish drivers all that much there's a lot of straights and turns with plenty of runoff on them so there's a there's a couple of things to take into account here and what's different um the first is that uh grand effect cars are just sort of a bit of a random element here we're not quite sure if that makes this a more dynamic track because it's quite hot here it's in the south of france in the riviera like i said it's it's in the same sort of general zone as monaco you're going to get similar kind of weather patterns that type of thing it's generally quite hot um so that means that the cars, you know, in the past not really having a great time following each other through these parts of the track. Maybe they sort of sit back a little bit. Um, whereas in Grand Effect, maybe they're able to turn, you know, follow each other a little bit through these technical sections. And then when they get to one of these DRS zones, there's two of them on the track. There's also a third sort of uh, um straight, which has a turn in it, which is basically flat out, um, which has a, a braking zone, which is a good overtaking spot. So there's a couple of spots where if the cars are close enough, actually there might be overtaking spots here in a way that they sort of, almost half the reason it was frustrating before is that you they were almost overtaking spots everywhere in this track. And you were like, just go for it. Oh, they're not close enough. Just go for it. Oh. So maybe this year a little bit closer. The other thing is that, uh, unfortunately, if you're listening to this podcast and, of course, watching the races, you know that the track limits discussion has become sort of ridiculous at this stage where nobody's quite sure, <laughs> you know, circuit by circuit, turn by turn, session by session. Sometimes the rules seem to be changing a little bit. If ever there was a track limits track where where we are going to see people push hard and not make an apex and trundle over a fairly uh, easy runoff area made of wonderful asphalt it's Paul Ricard so I don't know this could be a farce this could be really well regulated we could see really good racing because the drivers are trying harder than ever to stay in track limits I honestly don't know um, yeah I
0: mean we the track limits thing it it <laughs> it's like it swung from one end of the pe- pendulum to the other where it was like it used to be only some corners are policed, and then sometimes we don't really care if they are or not, uh, whatever. And now it's like every every white line is uh, off limits. Um, and even if you are Lando Norris and you uh, you yeah. brakes lock up and you go off track um, because you you can't stop, uh, oh well, that earns you uh, you know uh, an infraction. Um, so yeah, it. I mean it got on the verge of farcical in Austria. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm kind of of the opinion that like, go keep it on the track then.
2: I, I got an email you know. about this. We'll, we'll definitely be revisiting yeah, okay. this in a minute, right. but I, I'm, I'm kind of bullish on power card right now, because I think I, I, I feel like so much of what led to really boring races was the, the aerodynamic character, of the cars, um, and then just some of the mismatches that were baked into F1 for the last few years. Yeah. Uh, I am I feel like we've seen now a lot of proof that these cars can race and follow closer. They can like contest uh like contest like twistier sections in ways they couldn't before. And it's not mm-hmm. like not like in previous years where like on a stint of tires you had maybe a brief <laughs> little window uh yeah. where you could actually do this. So like I actually the weird thing is with some of the changes. Paul Ricard might actually be really well suited uh mm. to to some of these but I I do think it it does just have this problem of it's just not a very dramatic venue um and I'm I'm curious if with the new regulations can the racing make up for it cuz to a degree it, it, you're still dealing with the fact that this does kind of look like a really fancy autocross track and yeah. Yeah, it's autocross it's all but, asphalt yeah
0: it's it's hard to look at because they've got these um radiating colored lines that are that come off the track the into the, the runoff effect. area yeah. because yeah right. they the the um uh the paint that they use supposedly slows, slows the, the cars, cars. down yeah, like yeah. it's high high uh high traction
2: well, and I think it also gets confusing because there are so many different track configurations baked into it that, like, you're often always looking at like the right. track appears to go in like two directions at once, <laughs> and like
1: not that it's, it's unclear. Like Mario Kart. Yeah, pick it's your, like pick your, pick your lane. You
2: know? pick it's your not that it's track. unclear from the TV shot where the circuit is, but it is just a lot of like visual like noise where it's mm-hmm. like okay, there's I, I'm just seeing the other the other lanes that are open. And I just have to like not see that. It's I don't know, it's it's a uh a, a troubled event. I, I will say though, dramatic location in terms of like basically being on French Gibraltar uh airfield, right? <laughs> You're just like up there on up there uh you know, against these bluffs, it's that that's kinda cool.
1: Yeah, it's it, like you said, it is though, like it's part of the reason I've not done a this corner, this corner bit, because you're, there's no way to communicate it there. You know, there's there's a straight with a hairpin in the middle of it and more straight. That's the only part I can point out. The rest of it, you're just going to have to watch practice or qualifying or or the first couple of laps of the race to get an idea of how this track flows, because it is quite uh it's it's Sochi like in its sort of homogeny, I guess, is, is even more so. I would say it it does kind of look like a go karting track Um in that respect uh but yeah like you said rob i'm i am i dare i say i'm going to touch wood here but i'm cautiously optimistic um about this year's race and hey if it doesn't happen we've got a we got 20 something more races until the next Paul card
0: <laughs> yes well um i think the european uh zone what's it called continent Euro- europe <laughs> wow the eurozone it, <laughs> yeah thanks um, <clears throat> oh, he's in the wave, midst baby. of a, a heat wave, and oh, that yeah. is uh, going to persist through the weekend here at PowerCard.
1: Uh-oh. Uh-oh, it's going to cause problems. I
0: like it already. I mean, we're looking at uh, at qualifying time, which is local 4 p.m., 91 Fahrenheit or 33 Celsius with 47% humidity. Damn. Gross. And it is only a couple <laughs> degrees cooler uh, on race day at race time 0% chance of precipitation uh, although we will get a little wind, it looks like 14 miles an hour or 23 kilometers an hour on qualifying day uh, and only uh, a little bit lighter 10 miles an hour, 16 kilometers an hour
2: This is uh, why them day. people were rushing the Silverstone track
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> uh, Alright, yeah, but you know we have been surprised before I'm not holding out a lot of hope here, but who knows? Mm. Um, Driver standings in the Drivers' Championship heading into Paul Ricard. It looks like this. Max Verstappen is on top with 208 points. Charles Leclerc in second with 170. And Sergio Perez, the other Red Bull, in third with 151. Behind him, Carlos Sainz with 133. George Russell with 128. uh, Lewis Hamilton in sixth with 109 points. Then Lando Norris with 64 Esteban Ocon with 52, Valtteri Bottas with 46, Fernando Alonso in 10th with 29. Then we've got Magnussen with 22, Ricardo with 17, Gasly with 16, Fettel with 15. That's a close fight. Uh, Mick Schumacher in 15th with 12 points. Yuki Tsunoda's got 11. Joe has five. Alex Albon and Lance Stroll have three. And then Nicholas Latifi and his good old friend Nico Hulgenberg have zero. In the Constructor Standings, Red Bull Racing is on top with 359 points to Ferrari's 303. Mercedes is in third with 237. Then a big jump down to McLaren in fourth with 81, tied with Alpine. Mm. Uh, Alfa Romeo's in sixth with 51. Gene Haas and team have 34 points. Alfa Tauri has 27. They've got some upgrades coming to uh, Power Card, by the way uh aston martin is in ninth with 18 points and williams in 10th with three alex Albon apparently has some good things to say about the new direction uh the car the williams car is going also so look out for that look also look out i i heard christian horner saying uh that he expects mercedes to be faster at this track so a lot of uh cars Maybe. That may be better than uh, we've seen them
1: maybe a repeat of last year who knows just
0: I'll just say also
2: stories that got posted late before uh the, the show uh we re- recorded the show but Alonzo apparently is already making public statements about Alpine just giving up on this year's car and being <laughs> like hey let's not wait too long before we go all in on the 23 car uh man Fernando just has one speed uh he moves out which is I am the CEO like of this team you all work for me <laughs> yeah ex- exactly um yeah you may not be wrong, but it's just very funny to be like, well, we've got
0: some bad luck, folks. In goes the towel. Well, speaking of bad luck, you can join our fantasy league if you like <laughs> using the link in the show notes. Uh, and you can send us an email, Danny.
1: You can. We got a bunch of good ones here. This one from Maya. She says, Hi, guys. Big fan of the pod. My friend and I are heading to the French and Hungarian Grand Prix from, Sac- from Sacramento. Oh, <laughs> boy. And thought you might be interested in how these events are being organized in light of increased interest in the sport. And after the shit show that was the Spanish Grand Prix. France still has not sent us our tickets and told us weeks ago to expect a call from them to confirm our travel information for getting to and from the track, but has yet to call. I don't know if this is the first year of them doing this, uh, but to reach their environmental goals, they're only allowing 9,000 cars to pick up, uh, to park at the track, and you must have a green pass to park. Meaning that you've met certain metrics like carpooling, booking our travel. However, was fairly easy. We'll be in talking. Sorry, we'll be taking the train for five euros each way from Marseille, and then a free shuttle bus from the station. Compared to getting around sporting events in the U.S., this is a dream. Hungary has already sent us our tickets, but there's absolutely no information on transportation available. The French Grand Prix organisers have uh, a dedicated multi-language website. The Hungarian GP organisers seem to have no online presence. F1's (laughs) only info is that the race organisers usually have shuttles departing from, quote-unquote, throughout the city. Not super reassuring, but I guess we have to. We have two weeks to figure it out. I will say that between both races, which we got great seats for, and our flights there and back, we're paying the cost of the cheapest grandstand seating for the Miami Grand Prix. Whoa! If, if you've heard anything from fans in the past about getting to and from the Grand Prix, the Grand Prix in Budapest, I am all ears. <laughs> Looking forward to listening to this week's pod on our flight out of SFO. Cheers, Maya
0: uh bon voyage wow.
1: sounds like a fun trip
0: yeah and i love that we you know are <laughs> trying to be the uh you know the the one source of budapest attendance <laughs> info uh, Exactly. please yeah. yes
1: write in help maya if you know maybe a shift f1 budapest meetup for any budapest people right. we, we won't be I mean, there i'm but.
2: curious the the after action report uh on yeah that sounds totally. like a like a legendary trip uh and man a damning verdict on miami there like what what incredible i would so much rather see these two races in those places than go to miami uh for for that gp um even paul ricard yeah even even so uh our next one i do like the idea if they add like a nice track what do they just keep keep paul ricard add an east track keep monaco we have a little
1: a little (laughs) hang out out in the riviera for a month yeah
2: Yeah, i I do that let's go fellas let's let's (laughs) Let's drink that let's drink that beer
1: couple of weeks in Aix-en-Provence so we just kind of yeah, yeah like, a, like a soft like a convertible it's just the three of us our hair blowing in the air beautiful absolutely uh, all
2: right Our next email comes from Matt hey guys I love the podcast and your guys measured takes on the often polarizing world of F1 I've been watching F1 for three seasons and the one thing that bothers me the most about the sport is the ever changing rules about driving standards firstly no one ever seems to be pleased with how track limits are policed the stewards get criticized when they don't police them enough like from Verstappen and Bahrain last year or too. much. Much like this weekend where many drivers complained after 43 laps got deleted for track limits during the race. Driving standards also seemed to change from week to week as penalties were applied when Perez and Vettel were hit at turn four in Austria. Yet there were multiple instances of drivers being forced off the track at Silverstone that went unpenalized. Plus there was a lot of drama around drivers complaining about the stewarding at the drivers meeting this weekend. Both of these issues have existed throughout the past two seasons as well. My question is, has there always been a problem in F1 of inconsistent stewarding? Are there other racing series where they do a better job of policing driving standards? And if so, uh, what could F1 learn from them? Thanks, Matt. Uh, Yes, F1 perennially has this problem. It also extends to technical regulations. It is part of the sport's identity as being... So political that there's often been a well, if if this person does it, we'll we'll look askance at it, but maybe we'll let it slide, uh, <laughs> and that's that's always been F one. I think, and Drew, you were sort of alluding to this, and I, I think I'm increasingly with you, uh, which is that if F one's going to take the standard of keep it between the white lines, you got to keep a wheel on on racing tarmac uh, at all times, then police it. And it seems like they're doing it. And it does look it, it does look absurd uh, when they're issuing this many penalties. But this is also because these guys keep, like, pushing the limits and going off. And that's fine. You just don't get to keep your time. And I don't think that's necessarily – it is frustrating for them because, as, like, Brundle has alluded to, uh, the visibility in a modern F1 cockpit is really bad. You cannot, you do not have a sense of where your tires are relative to the racing surface. And so like these guys are often on the radio being like, no way, this is absurd. There's no way I went off. And the camera shows that yes, they, they absolutely went off. And I think in previous eras, it was easier to sort of like, uh, for drivers to see this because they were sitting higher up in the car and had a better, a better perch. Um, But I don't. I'm kind of with you as far as the track limits thing. I I think this is one place where they've sort of put down a marker, and they are issuing rulings to make it so that drivers are forced to observe those. The driving standards thing, when it comes to like how things are adjudicated around like contesting positions, fighting for corners, etc. I think there it does get. Necessarily, it's going to get more subjective because these are all subjective incidents. Uh, It's very rare that you have complete black and white uh, situations. However, it's also like patently obvious that there is inconsistent stewarding from event to event and Mm. also like from driver to driver. Uh, And that is something that I think is a real issue in F1 and they should probably get a handle on. um, I think part of it is they, they are still living with this system of the stewards are still not a completely like standard standard standardized consistent body uh, that's ruling out every race. And so you still have like weird subjective uh, differences from groups of stewards, But I also, like, I I am fully of the belief that uh, they are, they will allow things in certain parts of the field that they will not allow in others. Like, I do think Max Verstappen is given much, like, wider latitude about, like, how to defend a position than other drivers are given.
1: Oh, really? Okay
2: like Mm -hmm. i like i think i think that's that i think that's generally been the pattern where there is like the duel that he and mick schumacher had uh at silverstone max even said after the race you know it was good of mick not to try to force it because it would have caused an accident
1: yeah Um, and he he sort of like established that early in his career Uh, uh, and it's a you know it's a the senna-esque sort of like I'm going to go into it. You're the one who's going to cause a crash if you try and fight me with it. And you know, I, 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 I wonder. Yeah, I, I don't think it's not a legitimate tactic. You know what I mean? Like, but, but F1 doesn't need to enable it.
2: Like, if if that mm-hmm. is if that is the rule, uh, then. Probably you do need to look at things then like, well, why are we issuing people you know, penalties for collisions to turn four in Austria? Because like, hey, I'm just going to tell you, you can't go around the outside and turn four. I'll put you Mm. off. So they they end up with some really like sketchy rules and some really inconsistent enforcement that I think touches on. There's some drivers we'd like to see this from. Uh, Verstappen has kind of made it his brand to be one of those like. Almost like, what's the way to put this? Um, he sort of self-consciously in the mold of some drivers that have been like lionized in F1. You know, Danny alluded to Senna. Uh, you know, Michael Schumacher was the same thing, right? Where like, you know, the body of work on that guy, all his great moments also have attendant moments of like him being a wildly unsporting driver, but they all become part of the legend, right? Uh, this guy was a he was a tough competitor. And I think they I, I think they really struggle with sort of leveling the stuff out, uh, because they do want to let drivers like express that competitive instinct and their style mm. on the race. Uh, but I I do think it's it's a problem for the sport. As far as other series, I think this kind of stewarding, these judgment calls, again, you, you do see these issues raised in other sports. Like IndyCar has these same beefs around like you know, why are guys getting called uh, for this and and not that? Um, but I do feel like F1 has it uniquely bad. I think part of it is because all of it is so outsized uh, and public. Like I think one reason that I was certainly excited that you're going to get someone like uh, Eduardo Freitas in here is because I, I do feel like sports car racing because the fields are so big and it's all a little bit more anonymous because you have multiple like teams of drivers it seems like there's just less personal touch uh, in how you run these things. And in F1, it's all personal
0: touch.
1: Mm. Uh, Drew, you want to take this next one from Noah? Sure.
0: Yes. uh, Noah writes in with a pretty long email, but I, you know, I, I like this one. Uh, I think it gives a a case for doing a Saturday. Um, And it, it gives a good picture overall. If, You're out there wondering uh, what it's Mm -hmm. like moment to moment going to an actual race. Uh, Noah says, hey, guys, I wanted to email in and give my thoughts on my experience at Silverstone from the weekend before last. I'm an American who got into F1 in the latter half of 2019, and this was my first trip to a circuit. Overall, I had a blast and I would happily go to Silverstone again. My wife surprised me with last minute general admission tickets for the Saturday because we were visiting her sister in London and I had not realized that Silverstone was happening during our trip. (laughs) To no one's surprise, last minute Sunday tickets were stupid expensive. To get there, we woke up on Saturday morning and took a train from London to Milton Keynes. The train was very nice, and as an American who had never taken a train before, I was very intrigued and happy with the experience. After about a 30-minute train ride, which we spent chatting with some American McLaren fans, we then took a 40-ish minute bus ride to Silverstone. Even putting aside the throng of people taking the same route as us, it was very straightforward and we were never confused about where to go next. We got to the circuit toward the end of FP3, so we were able to see some on-track running that morning. I don't think I ever appreciated how different each car engine sounds from one another. That's something that the TV doesn't do justice. After that, we had a blast walking around the circuit, buying some admittedly overpriced merch, and taking in the sights. It was a huge event with tons of people there, and everyone was super excited. The circuit had plenty of video boards posted around the track, and I could generally hear the PA, as long as cars weren't running nearby. We also watched the W Series race and saw a Spitfire that they had fly overhead, which was super cool. Agreed. That would be really cool. Uh, as for qualifying, we found a spot near the end of the Hangar Straight, going into Stowe. I thought it was a good spot, and I have no complaints about our view or our location. We didn't bring any chairs, so we were standing, but it seemed like most of the people who were sitting were the folks who were camping out for the weekend, so chairs probably wouldn't have been useful anyways. As soon as we found our spot, the rain started, but that only added to the atmosphere. Seeing Quali in the rain was great, especially in the braking zone. We had a decent view at a video board, although it was hard to see during some of the rain. I'd also forgotten to rent a race radio, although I think having one would be necessary for the race. Uh, Quali was easy enough to follow without one. Uh, Our trip leaving the circuit and back to London was uneventful. Again, signs were clear and it was easy enough to find our bus queue. I understand that other circuits can be difficult to get to, but this was not the case here. The traffic back to Milton Keynes was not too bad, and it took us 40-ish minutes once again. As a last-minute purchase, GA was great. If I get the chance to go to another race weekend, though, I'll probably prefer some sort of grandstand access. I also was fine with just having Saturday tickets. Even though I didn't watch the F1 race, there was still plenty to do and watch, and I never felt bored. As a final note, I'm glad my first F1 experience was at a dedicated circuit with history and experienced workers. I'm sure I would have had a different experience with a more ad hoc setup, or if the race was being run by people who had never run one before. Thanks for creating such a great show, Noah.
2: That is a good point. I do wonder if Liberty fully appreciates that, too, is that there is a benefit from, like, the longstanding races. You know, the the thing that, like, extorting promoters for fees runs counter to is, like, stable calendar does mean that like you can work out the kinks at each venue and people really know what's up Now, Silverstone's special because everything runs there uh but that that's a great point you you hear how smooth that sounds uh compared to what you know the experiences tend to be at places like turkey uh for instance
1: mm. yeah thanks for sharing i love when we get these emails from people who have like been to races or or going to races in uh maya's case as well um I also love when people data mine for us and this one from Adrian is a is a good bit of fun so let's run through some of the points uh, hi guys I occasionally need data projects to scratch my curiosity ish sounds like you drew actually um <laughs> so like a totally sane person I decided to go to go to every f1 team's website and make a list of all their sponsors I also recorded the industry each sponsor is in and the country its headquarters is located in um Anyway, I pulled some interesting insights I thought y'all might enjoy. There are a total of 276 unique sponsors across all 10 F1 teams, 314 sponsors in total. Uh, McLaren has most of them at 47, while Alpha Tauri, not Haas, has the least with 13. Two teams still have tobacco sponsors, McLaren, British American Tobacco, and Ferrari, Mission Winnow. <laughs> is that a... <laughs> wait, wait, wait a second. Are you telling me that's tobacco? Um... Most sponsors uh, roughly fall into three buckets. Manufacturing, often referred to as technical sponsors, everything from wheels to brakes to 3D printing to seatbelts and helmets. Software... Lots and lots of data storage, analysis, services, cybersecurity, cryptocurrency, and fashion. Designer watches, clothing, luggage, sunglasses. Only three teams lack a cybersecurity sponsor. Williams has four. (laughs) (laughs) All 10 teams have a Pirelli sponsorship and a designer watch sponsor. Four teams lack a petrol sponsor. Two teams lack a sunglasses sponsor. Only one team lacks a food and beverage sponsor. It's Alpine. Only one gaming sponsor across the entire list, and it's Free Fire. Uh, Going by headquarters, yeah, Free Fire is a—it's a pretty big game in uh, in Asia. It's a, it's it's a sort of a not an MMO. Oh, in this
0: case, it actually means video games, not gambling.
1: Right, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Although those lines are getting blurred every day. Yeah. Uh, going by headquarters location, the countries with the most sponsors are United States, 98, Italy, 44, UK, 37, Germany, 25, Switzerland, 19, and France, 10. Why is the US top of the list? Because software and tech companies have lots of money. 51 of the 98 of the US sponsors were software or tech companies. Regards adrian uh he also shared the data but i'm not sure if you wanted me to share it with everyone so uh, adrian if you're listening give us a heads up and we can stick it in the show notes and in the next episode Uh, but yeah some interesting insights there i like how italy is the second highest sponsor probably because of fancy watches and yeah uh,
0: fashion fashion sunglasses etc
1: that's
0: really cool i i actually thought about doing this myself (laughs) so i'm glad adrian that you stepped up this is really cool
1: Love to see it. Uh, Drew, you want to take this one from Rachel?
0: Sure thing. Rachel says, hello, big fan of the show. Have learned a lot listening. I come to you with an absurd question. I know a lot of the drivers have motorhomes that they use during race weekends. Some of these, if not at all, uh, are really customized and nice. But how are these transported from race to race? Are they included in the freight for each team? That would make the most sense. But who's to say? Thanks in advance for any intel on this silly curiosity. So, my understanding is that the motorhomes you see in the paddock are owned by the teams. Um and they are used for team stuff like uh meeting with sponsors, um or you know, the the hospitality suites, you know. Mm. Maybe you go there if you're a driver part of the team to get some coffee on your way to the, the garage. Um, But I don't think the drivers sleep there. Uh, And I don't think it's like IndyCar where drivers do, like Roman Grosjean, drive (laughs) their RV to the track and just hang out there. I think that is more common in IndyCar. I think Formula One drivers stay in hotels. Mm, Yeah. Um, But those motorhomes that that do... um, you know, encompass the, the hospitality suites, they kind of, they're wild. They, they unfurl like transformers into buildings basically, but they're, they're, they come on flatbed trucks or, um, on, um, tractor trailers, semi trucks, uh, big rigs, et cetera. Oh yeah. Um, and I think for the continental races in Europe, they do drive them. Um, but I think for the flyaway races, they, I don't th- I don't think they go on planes, I think they're part of the I would expect they're part of the boat the boat uh the boat mm. contingent um but yeah that's that's what I know. Anybody else have any more info to fill in?
1: no, I think you you nailed it on the head okay. yeah the the drivers have they do have like areas in those for you know getting ready and prepping and stuff, but yeah they they tend to if you watch enough drivers survive, you'll see them leaving quite usually the fanciest restaurant or fanciest hotel in town as well yeah. Uh, Rob, you want to take this last one from Reed?
2: Uh, sure. Uh, Reed writes Hey, guys, I'm a new F1 fan who is looking to fill my summer pause weekends. And F1 TV has a ton of old races available on demand. What are highlight races from any season worth watching to fill the race car, race car shaped hole in my heart while we wait
0: for the Belgian GP? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a great question. And we also got a, a question on Twitter um, saying, like What seasons should I go back and watch? So I maybe mm-hmm. extended that too. Uh, I watched a few last
1: week. Do you mind if I tell yeah. you? Yeah, sure. I watched so I last week I watched uh 2 from 2019 cuz I wanted to remember the world before covid. <laughs> I watched uh Canada, uh which was really good. Um Vettel was sort of in the mix on that one that was the, you know, obviously Ferrari were doing decent that year, Vettel's, penultimate year with Ferrari. I forget. Um and I also watched the German Grand Prix from that year, which you may remember was the one with the Uh, It rained a lot and they had the, what was it, the drag racing strip that everyone kept getting caught on and sliding uh, sort of perilously towards the the barriers there. Uh, So, yeah, two of those for sure. Whenever this question comes up, I always say Canada 2011, um, which just watch it. Just give yourself a couple of hours, uh, expect some red flags and it's fun right until the last lap.
0: Yeah, I I don't have the depth uh, of of I've only been watching since twenty fourteen. I think was our first F one season, mm. um, but uh, I, I think the I remember the Lewis Nico season. What was that twenty sixteen when that was um, when they oh, were was close it that far there. Far away
1: it might be. Yeah, yeah. Rosberg's last season. Yeah. Um, um, Hamilton's first year was good as well. Or for I, I should say first championship year two thousand and eight. Don't people say 2012 was good, too? 2012 was the one... Was that the one where it went down to... The, in Abu Dhabi, five people could have won it. Was that 2012 or 2011? It was Weber's last year, I think. Okay. I can't remember if it was that one. Yeah, or just watch the last race.
2: Yeah. Uh, Given that it's... uh. Coming around to Spa, uh, I think the two. Speaking of the 2008 season, the 2008 uh, race at Spa was terrific. Uh, great changing conditions and a, the I think probably the most exciting battle that uh, Raikkonen and Hamilton ever had on track oh, nice. uh, is that one. And it's it's sort of soured by the fact that in the end, uh, like I think they handed. Hamilton a penalty uh, at the end of it and sort of knocked him. He like won the race, but then they knocked him down to like third or fourth with a with a penalty. But uh spoiler's it's, it's a it's a great race. Um, and it, like it's it's well it's well
0: worth watching. Excellent. By the way, that was Meredith Groves on Twitter who asked about uh seasons.
1: Terrific. Yeah, I know there's a lot of like blogs and stuff that will also give you a rundown of each year, pretty much. I will say that I will. I'm always amazed those people are like
2: can just like name and date a race and they remember what happened like Mm. i watch all the stuff i just do not. my head does not work that way where like (laughs) they're like if you're like ah you know remember remember uh melbourne in 2013 and i'm like absolutely not no i do not (laughs) (laughs) uh i will need to consult the wikipedia on that uh maybe something will jog my memory but like i i struggle to remember what happened this season right um it is just like the races are exciting i pay attention to them
1: but then it just enters sort of an undifferentiated mass uh until i can pull <laughs> details out i will say i think picking an old race or an old season is very much uh, sort of hangs on how much f1 knowledge you have so if like if you've only watched this season like probably don't go back more than three seasons because when all the characters change in your favorite sitcom, it stops becoming your favorite sitcom. Yeah, and you'll you'll realize very quickly how how you know often drivers are shuffled in and out. Um, you know if you, you go back five years, and it's going to be half the field or people you've never heard of.
0: So, so during um, during COVID, what I started doing, um, I thought I was going to have way more of an appetite for this than I than I actually did. Um, mm. you know, it, <laughs> we all we all figured out COVID in our own ways, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I. I wanted to go... I wanted to go like, all right, I'm going to start with Michael Schumacher's first race. Oh, wow. And follow this his seems career. a great and idea. just watch full races. And uh, I think I got like through a year and a half. Uh, yeah. and it was all right. I kind wow. of enjoyed it. I just, you know, I ran out of time and patience, I guess. But and maybe <laughs> maybe like pick up, you know, Räikkönen. See if you start there or like, you know, Lewis Hamilton. Um, or, or maybe like, you know... Uh, Charles peak mm. and uh watch all his Pas- races or
1: something. pastor maldonado pastor
0: maldonado <laughs> for example yeah or you know set some other kind of goal like that uh m- maybe watch all the spa races you know mm. through the years that might be fun f1 tv
1: there you go podcast to shift off what is it podcast
0: nope. e- emails at internet thoughts podcast <laughs> shiftf one podcast at gmail.com or f1.cool slash emails. Uh, you can also hit us up on Twitter at shiftf one podcast. I'm at Drew Scanlon. That is at Rob Zachney and at Danny O. Dwyer. That is us around the internet. Should we take it around the world? Now?
1: Let's race around the way. Hey hey, hey.
0: Formula 2 yeah. and W Series will be uh, uh, supporting Formula 1 at La Castellet in Circuit Paul Ricard. Uh, IndyCar has a doubleheader this week at the Iowa Speedway. Uh, Motocross Grand Prix is racing uh, in Belgium at the Motocross Grand Prix of Flanders. Ooh, the Leftorium. (laughs) That's not where my head went. I went to World War I, but... uh, I went to... You know, different (laughs) Uh, strokes. We've got... Hmm. The Camping World Trucks at Pocono. The Tricky Triangle for the CRC Brackleen 150. I don't know what any of that means. Brackleen. We've also got my my darling (laughs) Brackleen.
2: Oh my (laughs) darling.
0: We've got uh, the NASCAR Xfinity Series also at Pocono for the Explore the Pocono Mountains 225.
1: It's a shame the race isn't in the Pocono Mountains. I could have done that. Would have worked great. Especially with the trucks. Brake clean is a brake parts cleaner. Bra-clean, brake clean, brake
0: clean, brake clean, brake clean, brake clean. Here okay. we go. We got car. <laughs> oh my! Also at Pocono, Pocono. for the M Ms. Oh, fan appreciation four
1: hundred. Are uh, we just? We just love all of our fans. We love our peanut fans. We love <laughs> our crispy fans. We love our regular M M&M m fans. Mm. What else we got? What are our flavors we
0: got? We got the pret pretzel
1: pretzel flavor. Yeah, we got. We got, it. we got. Yeah, we just love them all. Skittles, fuck off! Skittle fans, go away. <laughs> go to another racetrack. That's it's something
2: M&O. where there's a lawsuit M&O against M&O Skittles because they might be unfit for human consumption. I think I it. Yeah, like, us here
1: at the M M&M and M factory, we agree. That's <laughs> our M M&M and M factory. <laughs> That's <agree>. true. <laughs>
0: Everybody knows yeah, it's it. True.
1: We put that news out, but it's true.
0: <laughs> uh, Formula One. Kicks off Friday, July 22nd at 8 a.m. Eastern Time for free practice one on ESPN. You followed Hell by free yeah. practice two at 11 a.m. on ESPN two two. Saturday, July 23rd, free practice three is at 7 a.m. on ESPN two, followed by qualifying at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN two. But the race, everyone, <sighs> Sunday, July 24th at 8 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN. Final Doesn't, thoughts ahead of Le Castellet, Circuit Paul Ricard, Rob.
2: Uh, sorry, I'm just hung up now on this. That, that Skittles lawsuit, I, I can't render a verdict <laughs> on it yet. You know, I don't want <laughs> to say anything a, about... Don't
1: get us sued by Skittles, dude. Uh, that such a... It's just
2: there is imagine. a lawsuit. There's class action saying there's things in Skittles that, like, maybe are bad for you, but who can say? I'm no scientist.
1: Do your own research. Taste the libel. Makes your, makes your pee look like urine i don't know it sounds pretty cool Sounds actually. pretty
2: bad <laughs> uh yeah but no i am I'm, I'm uh we've been on such a good run of races i'm excited for this one um I, I i feel like this has not historically been a great venue but games changed f1's in a different place now maybe even paul ricard can uh wow. can have a shot at
1: glory wow all right danny yeah like i said usually down on this one but uh there's enough sort of i don't know dominoes pointing in the right direction that hopefully we get a good race because uh we ain't got one for a couple of weeks after this one
0: uh number one i think you're crazy i think this is going to be a, a regular circuit power card and number two we've got hungary a week after it so we do <laughs> is have it a race. week after i thought it was two yeah. weeks nope it's, it's one week th- yep and th- then then it's the the mid-season break Yep, then it's the break okay yeah. That
1: makes a lot, now Maya's email makes a lot more sense. I was like, oh, you're going to Europe for like a month. Awesome. Weird time to do it, but sure. Yeah. That makes way more sense.
0: Sorry. Uh, if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes and the official Shift F1 Discord, you can do so over at patreon.com shiftf one Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. Meow. <laughs>